Well, indeed, it's my uh, great privilege and pleasure to be with you today on this brutally cold Sunday. Glad we could gather together, being able to fill in my for my friend, Pastor Youngbar. <clears throat> Over the years, um, I've been famous, or maybe I should say infamous, for relatively taking off very few Sundays from the church. I know there were two times I went over two years and never took a Sunday off. But wow, man, talking with Pastor Allen recently, uh, he's taken way fewer fewer Sundays off than, than I ever did. But, you know, in any event, over the last three decades, between the, the two of us, we've had Hagerstown and Washington County totally covered. He on the east side, me on the west side, you know, just saying. And if you accidentally today call me Pastor Allen, that's okay because it's actually my middle name. Well, uh, I'll open today with a warning. Listening to me preach can be very dangerous for your health and even survival. It's true. I've been dropping people for decades. Uh, back in my home state of New Jersey, I grew up in a church involvement in my teenage years, very much involved in music and worship ministries, and thus I went off to Bible college to pursue a musical education with a view toward being involved as a career in church worship ministries. After my freshman year at college, back home for the summer, my um, home pastor told me once one day that he didn't ask. He told me one day, you're going to be preaching on thus and such certain evening. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And uh, so I'd never done that before. And so I preached on the book of Job. And I thought it went rather well. And I got to the end and I, I finished with a prayer. And, and when I said amen, I looked up and back a ways off to the side, there was one of the elder ladies of the church and she was stretched out on the floor and people were gathered around her. And I heard him saying, we called the ambulance and the ambulance came and took her and well, it all turned out to be okay. She was a diabetic and at the end of the sermon, she had a low blood sugar, passed out and it worked out just fine. But I'll tell you, I was very much teased by the pastor and others for trying to kill somebody with a sermon. Uh, well, that was almost 50 years ago. In fact, this summer, that would be 50 years ago that that happened. And since then, I have a complete litany of stories of that sort, of things that have happened on Sunday morning at church, often involving people with medical crises and things like that, that happened back in my New Jersey church. Actually, a, a person died between Sunday school and church there one Sunday. So are you... Um, getting scared yet? But listen, where would it be a better place to die? N name a better place to die than in church on Sunday. Uh, well, it's going to be okay, really, uh, I think. But I'm not the most famous preacher to have had this happen to him. There was this other guy, you've probably heard of him. His name was the Apostle Paul. And um, he actually, he wrote more books in the New Testament than I have. That's a true statement. And um, he had it happen to him and uh, while well, he was speaking once. And so anyhow, our title today in this excursion into the book of Acts is called Church Life Beyond the Killer Sermon. 
Again, I could entertain us for the next half hour of stories of crazy things that have happened in church services doing this pastoral thing. And I could go on and on with humorous stories that I've heard over the years about pastors who tend to talk a little bit too long, like this famous story of a distant past. I remember hearing of how there was this pastor guy, and he was going on and on. He was up to 70 minutes, and a person in the front area of the church finally got so sick of this loquacious speaker that he grabbed the hymnal. He threw it at the guy. The pastor ducked and didn't get hit, but unfortunately, the lady in the front row of the choir caught it at the same anatomical position that Goliath caught the stone from David's slingshot. And as she was passing out, she said, hit me again. I can still hear him. (laughs) Or this story of a time when there was a mother and a little boy and they were in the foyer of their church and the boy was looking at the wall and he saw like a plaque there with a lot of names and statements and he couldn't read it. So he said to his mom, what what is that all about? And she says, oh, well, that's to honor all the men who have been killed in the service. And the little boy said, well, was it the early service or the late service where they died? Uh, So, but the issue of long-winded sermons being deadly is not really the big takeaway from this passage in Acts 20. Biblical teaching and instruction, a component of gathering of a church on a Sunday, that's a big part of it for sure. But I think from this passage, we can learn more broadly about what is the entire experience of a church community when they get together on a Sunday morning. So in today's passage in Acts 20, we open to that and we see there's a continuing chronology here of Paul's missionary life and his travels in the expanse of the Roman world in the first century. And the first paragraph that we'll see here has a whole number of travel details, including Luke, the writer, saying us and we, which we would indicate from that, understand from that, that he is now part of the traveling team here with the Apostle Paul again. We'll also note in this passage that there's quite a number of other names. And we believe these to be a lot of younger men that Paul was traveling with and instructing and discipling along the way. And it would be a great privilege to be able to do that with the Apostle Paul or to have him visit because he was becoming a well-known uh, personality in the uh, first century um, of the church. And so uh, first thing we'll read about is that there was an uproar, it says, that Paul is leaving behind as he journeys onward. And this is related to an event that was recorded in the previous chapter 19. It's about this fellow named Demetrius, who was a silversmith in the city of Ephesus. And his business was, of course, very negatively impacted by the expanse of the preaching of the gospel of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And so this Demetrius guy brought charges against Paul. It made for quite a public scene. And Paul's like, okay, we got to move on here. So let's begin reading chapter 20, verse 1. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Now, all of this traveling is a part of what we know as Paul's third missionary journey. Now, these journeys can be really confusing. So let me help you put it together in your memory with it and geography with a little bit of a map here. And so on this map, you can pick up Paul there uh, in Ephesus at the center. 
and um, you'll see that the line goes northwest into Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, and then it's going straight south to Athens and Corinth, and after being there in that area for three months, during which time he wrote the book of Romans, uh, now we go back to the text where it says, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopatar, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And it says, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. Ultimately what is happening here is Paul is journeying with these folk toward Jerusalem and he's stopping in at some convenient places where he can stop along the way at some of the early churches to be a blessing and encouragement to them. Uh, and so through this uh, narrative section, you know, I, I, I've always loved these narratives because you can learn things from them. Yeah, they can be a little bit tedious at times, but what I like about them is what they teach us from what you observe. You observe, of course, here the Apostle Paul with the passionate heart that he has for lost people in the expanse of the gospel. But beyond that, we can also see uh, how he had a heart as well for bringing these other young folk along with him that they may gain and grow and serve in that same kind of passion. And man, we should all be like that, looking behind us, seeing who's coming behind us that we may encourage and bring along in the things of faith and service to the Lord. But hey, go back to looking at a map again. You can see Philippi at the top left. And from there, the journey to the southeast to Troas. And you see there the word Eutychus, a character we're going to meet here in a minute at Troas. So this was about a 150-mile journey for Paul and Luke. It took them five days. And then last, we see that Luke writes that their total time in this coastal city of Troas is going to be for a total of seven days. So now we come to our main passage of interest today, verses 7 to 12 here of Acts 20. Here's what it says. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was falling into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So, obviously, a first application we can take from this passage right away today is there's really no reason why now that we're here and I'm talking, I just can't keep preaching for hours and hours and but I'll tell you what, I'll make a promise. I'll be done. I'll be done by dinner time. All right? Okay, just kidding. Just kidding. Putting the days together, we see that Paul has been uh, with them for about six days in Troas, and it's now Sunday. And Paul has, for the next day, Monday, he has booked 
through Travelocity, I'm sure, tickets for his gang, his entire group, to be moving on to the ultimate goal of Jerusalem. But first, something happens to and through him in that service. That same thing that in all my years of ministries I have seen happen to some pastor dudes sometimes and as well some worship leading dudes at some time where they get excited about what they're talking about. They get caught in the spirit and they just kind of go on and on and the sermon's going on and on or they get into the worship and it's kind of like, well, let's just sing that chorus one more time thing, you know. It happens and, uh, you know, they lose track of the time and the minutes. But I think back then they didn't have clocks with minutes and digital cell phones or watches or monitor screens. Uh, so I, I guess we could forgive them a lot sooner than the, the modern dude types who get on and on. But there are a number of background things in this passage that can help us better understand the early church gathering that we see here in Troas. I'm going to list seven things that help us about this uh, meeting in Troas. The first one is this, and that is the time of the meeting. The meeting time being a late Sunday afternoon into the evening. This is one of several passages in the New Testament that teach us that indeed the early church gathered on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. Now understand, in that culture of that time, there was really no such thing as a work week followed by a weekend, a work week where most people worked and most people then were off on a weekend. Uh, and this is, you know, a couple decades at least before Chick-fil-A was off on Sunday. And there were no blue laws, if you remember what those things were about Sundays where things couldn't be open. Um, and, I guess there aren't any of them anymore. But all to say, this was a work day for people gathering there. And uh, the only time to get together would be, if they're doing it on a Sunday, it would be later in the day into the evening. We don't really know that much about the church at Troas. This is not one that Luke reports in his writing of the gospel, or excuse me, of the history in the book of Acts, as having been personally established by the Apostle Paul. Uh, surely there were others who were doing missionary work and going out and establishing uh, churches, being blessed and empowered by God as missionary agents throughout the Roman world. Troas was, though, mentioned earlier, the church there in Acts 16, and Paul was apparently there as he received the, what we know as the Macedonian call, the spirit moving in him with that vision to expand, spread the gospel over into the continent of Europe. But it is unlikely that Paul, in the big picture of things, had spent a lot of time in Troas and with the church there. And certainly he'd know the, not know them on the same level as, say, the Christians in Ephesus, where he spent a lot of time, or several other cities. But it was surely quite an honor for these folks to have the Apostle Paul visiting with them in Troas and being with them on a Sunday service gathering. So that's the meeting time. How about the meeting place? The meeting place, secondly, this is an upper room. As with the Last Supper of Christ with the disciples, 
the place in ancient buildings that would be the largest gathering space was not like in our structures, usually on a first floor, but rather on an uppermost floor of the building because the, the first floor would have lots of partitions for smaller rooms and then maybe a little bit bigger, and then the wide open room would be perhaps on a third floor. And... Uh, now, you know, I kind of doubt that they had local building codes then with elevators to get people up to the third floor. We had to do that over my church at Tri-State where I was all these years. We had a, an upper level with educational rooms and the code required that we put an elevator in. We never used it. It was just there because we had to have it. And maybe it get used by the janitor once every six months to take some tables up or down or something like that. And then a couple of years ago, it broke and it had to be replaced. $30,000 for something we hardly ever use. Well, they didn't have that, but that's where they're gathering on an upper floor. This is probably the only room in home, again, big enough space, especially for the unique occasion of having someone as special as the Apostle Paul visiting, speaking to the entire group. Likely, this was also the, li the largest of homes of people who were a part of that church community, likely also the home of a wealthier member of the church community. So we see the meeting time, Sunday, we see the meeting place and upper room. Uh, third, we see the meeting environment. The environment, a crowded room with lots of candles burning and diminishing oxygen. If Franklin Graham were your guest today, instead of me, as he maybe was traveling from, where is he, Tennessee maybe, or North Carolina, traveling to Washington, D.C., and he came through town here. It, we'd probably have a bigger crowd here today, so you don't you suppose? And uh, we'd maybe even use all the extra chairs and fill the room. Yeah, well, that's what it was like with Paul being there. But unlike this facility here where the air filtration system could deal with a large crowd, that probably wasn't very true in an upper room at this house in Troas. Luke writes, there were many lamps, he says, many lamps in the upper rooms where they were all gathered. You put all this together and what do you have? A situation where there was probably a very stuffy depletion of oxygen. Dr. Fauci would not approve of this whatsoever, I'm telling you. Okay, so that's the third thing we see. A fourth thing we see about the meeting is the meeting attendees. Who's coming to it? A variety of people, including slaves. Probably the Troas church, like many of the New Testament church in that era, it was probably comprised of a combination of both Jewish people who had come to Christ and Gentile peoples who were now following uh, the way. And... Uh, Probably also it was very much a mix of different segments of society from the varied layers of society, from the wealthy people to those who would even be in the slave or indentured servitude classes of society. One of these, uh, the slave class, probably was this young man we read about, Eutychus, speculating that he may have been like a guy, maybe like 14, 15 years old, something like that. He'd probably a fellow who'd worked all day. It was now approaching midnight, it says in the text. He, it was a really late hour for such a weary fellow sitting in the windowsill. And there he succumbs to the conditions and found himself in a free fall out the window. His experience ultimately was one of intimate fellowship with the ground and he was dead. So, how dead was he? 
what is this like a, just an expression? I mean, I, I like saw that and dropped dead. No, no, no. How dead was he? No, he was dead, dead, it says in the text. Who wrote the text? Luke. What was Luke's profession? A doctor. Yes, he was dead. We can trust the science. Yeah, that's what we can trust. He was dead, dead. Yes. And so, um, we obviously, this would interrupt the service, so they all gathered there, uh, and, uh, and the extended speech of the Apostle Paul, he went down, and it says there that Paul lies on him in the pattern of the well-known accounts of Elijah and Elisha from the Old Testament. Life comes back into this young man, and they all rush back on upstairs again. Why? Well, obviously, the Apostle Paul had not yet finished his sermon. It was almost done, but yeah, okay. So here we see a fifth thing, the meeting menu. The menu at the meeting, breaking bread, it says, and eating. And it says, when they went upstairs again, and they broke bread and ate. Let me tell you, there are two different Greek words here for breaking bread and ate. The breaking bread Greek word is one that is used throughout the New Testament to talk about what we do with the, um, the bread and wine, the communion time. So the communion thing is that breaking of bread in remembrance of Christ. The word ate, though, now let me say about that also, that's really, we think about it, that is really the main reason why, number one reason, why do you meet on Sunday, let's say, the New Testament Christian first century? Why do you do it? Well, we, we do it because we are going to remember what Christ has done. That was their first reason. They wouldn't have church without it. That was the reason for getting together. Along with that, they had the teaching in the Word, they had worship, they had fellowship, they had exhortation, and all the other elements. Um, but the other word for eating, when it says, and they broke bread and ate, that word in Greek is a word that speaks of common foods, like you'd have at a normal daily meal. The New Testament church, meeting as it did and when it did, I suppose it regularly involved a common meal toward the end of the day. And it's in the context of the common meal that the other elements of the service took place, the communion, the teaching, the scripture readings, the exhortations, and so on. Remember how Paul rebuked the Corinthians at one point when the wealthier people were getting there first and they were eating and the poorer people came later and there wasn't anything for them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians on this occasion and said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? Certainly not in this matter, says in 1 Corinthians, that's chapter 11. Well then, here is another matter about Paul's speaking. This is a sixth thing we can see is the meeting leader. The meeting leader, it says a guy doing lots of talking, talking, talking. In just these few verses, it four times speaks of Paul speaking, talking, and so on. And I'm going to go Greek on you again. There are three different Greek words used here in the New Testament. The first of these words is about a reason-based type of communication. And I would take that it means that he delivered a prepared sermon. 
such as we're doing here. The second Greek word that's used there of Paul's talking is more of like what you would see in a classroom, a lecture, a kind of a systematic review of things. I suppose Paul did some teaching through uh, a sermon, and then he did some teaching of points he wanted them to understand, maybe with some interchange back and forth. That's the second. The third final word for speaking is when it says he was talking until daybreak. That is just the general simple word for talking, of normal conversation. It's the word that the New Testament Greek uses in uh, Luke chapter 24. Remember where the two fellows were on the road to Emmaus and talking about the things that happened? It says they were talking there. That's what that word means. So this is the kind of conversation that was going on. So Paul probably gave the sermon. He did some expanded teaching in a systematic way. And then he hung around all night talking. Yes, the entire evening. And though it does not say it explicitly here, probably everyone there in Troas realized that they're never going to see this guy again. Because it's the very next passage, we're not looking at it today, but the very next passage here in Acts 20 is where Paul goes to his next stop, <coughs> excuse me, Miletus, and Ephesus is a few miles inland. He calls the elders to come down because he doesn't have time to run up there himself. If he does, he'll get stuck up there with all his friends and he won't make it to Jerusalem on schedule. And so he tells them to come down. He meets them there. And here's how that passage ends. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And likely also the people in Troas knew this. And then finally, a seventh point we'll make today, and this amounts to our takeaway points of application for today. The seventh thing to say is about the meeting results. The results, which are timeless truths worth emulating. What I want you to remember about our brief time together today in this message and to take away with you from this excursion into Acts 20 is this. Put it in a sentence here for you. The timeless stuff worth emulating is that we all need regular exposure to two things. The instruction that comes from God's revealed word and the fellowship that comes from being with other of God's people as we share our gifts for service one with another. That's what we want to take away. Two things, instruction, fellowship. First, instruction, a major reason why we get together on Sundays in the church, then and now, is for instruction, intentionally placing yourself under God's word, recognizing that there is value in this destruction, instruction, and it's a value for all of life. We need life, we need to be lifelong learners. You never completely arrive in understanding the word of God. I'm amazed that after all those years of education and pastoring and stuff, I'll get passages of scripture, something I'm reading, something I hear, or I never, you know, I never realized that truth was right there, or I never saw it that way, and I'm blessed and better capable to move on in walking through the Christian life. 
and as well beyond instruction with one another, especially if you're spiritual gifted in this way, you need to intentionally uh, be, at a minimum, exhorting other people in truths of Scripture with reminders, but particularly to younger generations and those who are newer in the faith and coming along. We need to be bringing them along in truth. So why do we get together? Two big things, instruction, the other, fellowship, and the sharing of gifts. What I love about this passage is the picture of the great body life that goes on when the church is gathered so many of my favorite memories of being a pastor and being involved in church life over all the years, the three churches where I've been a staff member, is, yeah, there's great things about services and big things we did, but I think the most precious memories are just the conversations in the hallways and the pews and the seating and so forth, just living life together, just being together and sharing life with each other. Um, you know, this is valuable time. It's one of the great blessings of having a church family and community. And so for this to be a blessing for you, you need to be there to get that blessing. But you also need to be there to give that blessing to others because none of you have got everything you need. Neither, none of you have got everything that someone else needs, but everybody has deficits, everybody has assets, and we need to be giving what are our strengths as we gain from the strengths of others that are weaknesses in ourselves. That's what gathering is all about with one another. Um, in my Dallas church, where I was a minister of music, the Sunday schedule there was like this. It was 8.30 was the first service, <clears throat> then there was a 9.45 uh, Sunday school time, followed by an 11 o'clock service. Now about 25% of the church body came to the early service, and about 75% came to the 11 o'clock service, except when the Cowboys were playing on the East Coast at 1 o'clock in the Eastern time, which is noon, then it was like this, <laughs> okay? The early service had the 75% in it. But here's one thing I remember about serving in that church is for the second service, starts at 11, you could set your watch. It was 10.59 when a certain couple walked down the side aisle and they sat in the, two, the third row, two seats on the end of the third row, and they sat down there. And then the very second the clock hit noon, they stood up and they walked out. It didn't matter if there was an invitation going on, a song, a prayer, uh, the sermon going a little, whatever it was, noon. It's time to get, and they, they left through the foyer to their car. They're gone. Listen, don't be those people, either in action or in attitude. Hang out together a lot because your church friends really are the coolest people that you know. It's kind of, think of it like a Thanksgiving dinner. You don't come like come running into the Thanksgiving dinner right as the prayer is happening on Thanksgiving Day and gobble it down the turkey and quickly get the apple pie and finish that off. And as soon as you're done with that, you get up and leave without saying anything to anybody. You wouldn't do that, would you? So why would you do that in the church of Christ? You need to hang out with each other, to be together, to encourage and exhort one another, because again, nobody has every gift. We need to be active. We need to be faithful. We need to be the sorts of people who aren't those kinds of people who only show up 
and hang out on a Sunday if there's absolutely nothing else to do. You don't want to be that way. You need people who need you as well. Great churches that are filled with great people understand that these values today of teaching and fellowship are things that we need to remember today. And a way to remember it is let me send you out with two-word application and description of this. You need two things in your life. You need revelation, the word, and you need relation. Revelation, the word, relation, interaction, and fellowship with those of like precious faith. You can't get too much of either one of those needs. So it's appropriate for us in the Church of Christ to keep talking and talking and talking while also listening, listening and listening, being active and serving, serving and serving, because that's the best way for the body of Christ and the local church to be growing, growing, and growing. Father, thank you for these truths, for the illustration that we see in Scripture of a healthy body of believers gathering together, understanding their needs for Scripture, understanding the gifts that they bring, understanding the needs that they have for fellowship, and spending the time and investing the time one into another. So, Father, I pray that increasingly as churches we can be like that. I pray that over this church as well, that you will over time increase their fellowship and instruction and well-being in the Word of God as they reach out to others in this community. Thank you for your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.